Bienvenue and welcome back to The Land of Desire, a podcast about the weird, wacky, and wonderful history of France. This is your host, Diana, and this week, I'm taking us behind the headlines to examine a bit of news that's currently sending shockwaves through France. We're going to dive into French labor law for a moment, but don't go anywhere. I promise I will not be reciting import quotas and workplace safety requirements. Instead, we're trying to gain a better understanding of one of the most important aspects of modern French life, something as crucial to the day-to-day existence of French men and women as, say, the baguette. You're going to be hearing a lot about French labor laws in the weeks ahead. It's dominating the headlines across the country. So I figured, why not do a quick exploration of the issues so you can be really impressive at your next cocktail party when somebody brings it up. We've spent most of the past few months considering France as a destination for others, a place that the world visits, experiences, and leaves. But the month of September marks la rentrée, the great return of the French from their traditional summer holidays. The rentrée isn't just the French version of back to school. Yes, there is le rentrée scolaire, in which all French children pick up their books and head to class, but there are other great returns across all of French society. There's le rentrée littéraire, in which all the great novels of the year make their debut just in time for literary prize consideration. It's kind of like America's Oscar season. As one French book editor said, no one would think of publishing a new book here in July or August. Then a tidal wave comes in September, linked to the year-end literary prizes. But it doesn't stop there. There's also Le Rentrée Culturelle, in which blockbuster art exhibitions and theater productions make their debut. There's also Le Rentrée Politique, when French politicians return to office and begin a new season of legislative debate. And finally, crucially, there is Le Rentrée Économique, when French men and women wrap up their vacations, drop off the kids at school, and head back to work. These great returns, which mark the changing of the seasons and the cycle of everyday life for the French, are the result of France's famous worker benefits, which guarantee five weeks of paid vacation. Le rentrée is the renewal of that social contract, which promises that in exchange for rest and recreation, one offers one's labor. But this year, le rentrée politique and le rentrée économique are at odds, and the result is spilling out into the streets from Calais to Montpellier. At the heart of this unrest, an unremarkable-looking book, bound in red, 3,500 pages thick, held up by various leaders as the symbol of all that is special and all that is broken in modern France. The Code du Travail, the Labor Laws of France. Timing is everything. In the history of French labor, one important fact sticks out way ahead of the rest. France gained the right to strike 
20 years before it gained the right to unionize. It's tempting to assume that striking and unionizing go hand in hand, but these are two separate histories which often parallel. French workers gained the right to strike in 1864 and the right to form unions in 1884. Over the next 50 years, French men, and often women, would exercise these rights in exchange for improved working conditions, better pay, and social benefits. Yet, these changes didn't come all at once. Often, a local disaster triggered widespread protests which yielded a new bit of legislation. For example, the 1906 Corriere mining explosion, which killed more than 1,000 workers, yielded months of protests across northern France. But in that same year, 1906, there were 1,309 strikes involving 438,500 workers. Each individual battle resulted in its own piece of the legislative puzzle. It didn't take long for employment law to grow haphazard, redundant, and often contradictory. It was out of control. By 1896, a group of politicians declared that there seems to be a fear of addressing the major discussions that will raise labor issues. We think that the duty of the legislator must be broader. He must examine and solve the problems posed. He must group the scattered texts, modify the old texts to bring them into line with the needs of our time, and form a body of laws that are clear and precise. We demand a labor code that regulates the relations of the workers and their employers. In 1912, after decades of strikes, industrial accidents, unemployment, and industrial revolution, the French government voted to consolidate all of its employment law into a single text. The original mission was simple, but it was overwhelming. Search through all the laws of the land to find anything related to employees, bosses, wages, working conditions, and more, and just put them all on the same book. This straightforward task took another 10 years, and the very first edition of the Code de Travail made its publication debut in 1922. Yet, this simple collage of the existing laws did nothing to resolve the inherent messiness of the laws themselves. As one critic wrote in 1927, the labor code has been made to unite in one body the innumerable provisions of the labor legislation, scattered in all the laws voted from day to day and often from circumstances. All this forms an unsatisfactory whole, especially since codification mixes the most important and new laws with the most obsolete provisions. What was France's response to this criticism? Eh, when in doubt, pass another, newer law and just add a few more pages to the code. The 2017 edition of the Code du Travail, bound in its traditional red cover, is 3,324 pages long. In order to reflect the changes made within the last year alone, 
editors amended over 500 articles. The book is broken up into eight sections, with over 10,000 articles covering everything from how French unions should receive wages to how often to the most obscure regulations within a single industry. Nearly 200 pages alone are devoted to the art of firing employees. As Gerard Filoche, the former labor inspector, said on the Code du Travail's 100th anniversary, "The labor code is made of blood, sweat, and tears. Each article, each paragraph, each decree is the result of fighting and bitter negotiations." The problem is. Once a law has been passed, there's no going back. There's a magic number in French business, forty-nine. That's the greatest number of employees a company can have before most labor legislation kicks in. There are twice as many French companies with exactly forty-nine employees as there are French companies with fifty or more employees. Take a moment. Think about that statistic. It's so ridiculous. I'm going to say it again. There are twice as many French companies with exactly 49 employees as there are French companies with 50 or more employees. On the one hand, it subjects growing businesses to regulations that vary from the expensive to the time-consuming to the flat-out absurd. In one example. The founder of a French chocolate company, having hired his 50th employee, had to take a couple days off of the work floor to calculate how much chocolate he could ration for France in the case of war. As that French chocolatier told the New York Times, "Let's be clear: the situation in France has become so complex that many company owners decide not to grow." But on the other hand. These laws represent very real benefits and protections for French workers, rights that affect French men and women's abilities to secure regular jobs, regular pay, regular hours, regular vacations, and the kinds of social benefits which make up the backbone of modern French life. Conservative newspapers like Le Figaro love to make fun of passages in the Code du Travail. Passages that detail things like whether French employees are allowed to eat sandwiches at their desk or send work emails during their summer holidays. But what are the underlying purposes of those regulations? They're things like: don't exploit your workers by expecting them to work through their lunch breaks. Don't expect your employees to be on call 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, especially when they're on paid time off. So how can France stay true to those worker protections without lumbering its way into this Kafka-esque bureaucratic nightmare? One French professor of labor law wrote, "There is no scientific study proving that the current code hinders employment. There is room for a comprehensive rewriting of the code to make it more readable and accessible, but simplification should not mean deregulation. In other words." Is it possible to streamline French labor laws without stripping them away entirely? No one is certain. The end result: whenever any politician in France tries to touch the Code du Travail, its political 
dynamite. Currently, French unemployment hovers around 10%. Is that the fault of the overly burdensome Code du Travail, with all those small companies unwilling to shoulder the burden of dreaded employee number 50? Or are French economic woes more complex than that? Anne Edu from the Center for Employment Studies argued that the relationship isn't so clear. For example, when mass unemployment in the 1980s gave employers the upper hand, suddenly bosses were able to add their own exemptions to the labor code. Some of the most complex, lengthy articles in the Code du Travail stem from these pro-employer exemptions to worker protections. It became easier to hire part-time contract employees. And now, part-time contract work is all most French job seekers can find. Who's to blame? It depends on where you fall on the political spectrum. On the left, you could argue that employers only hire part-time contract workers because they've made loopholes that keep such employees cheap while offering them no benefits. On the right side of the aisle, you could argue that employers are hiring part-time contract workers because the labor code makes it practically impossible to hire regular full-time workers. There's one thing everyone can agree on. Nobody is hiring for traditional jobs anymore. 86.4% of all hiring in 2016 was for temporary roles. 50% of those temporary roles were filled by people under the age of 24. But we're not just talking about crummy high school jobs, the kind that you, you take on when you're 16 and you eventually age out of. That's not what we're seeing. Only 20% of French employees with temporary jobs had found full-time work three years later. These days, many desperate French workers are opting out completely. In the past nine years, self-employment has risen 17%, compared to virtually 0% growth in traditional salaried employment. Young people throughout France are stuck on the treadmill, a series of temporary jobs which never result in full-time employment, no matter someone's qualifications or previous experience. More than 40% of millennials in Europe are stuck on that treadmill, and they're losing hope. In France, those trapped millennials are known as the Génération Galère, Generation Slog, unable to escape the swamp of underemployment. For the last 25 years, any politician foolish enough to threaten the Code du Travail winds up, ironically, out of a job. The last to try? Just this last year, President Francois Hollande gave it a shot, and weeks of street protests convinced him to withdraw his legislation right quick. But the new president of France, Emmanuel Macron, has made the streamlining of the Code du Travail the heart of his campaign for change. Last week, Emmanuel Macron's government unveiled a giant overhaul of the Code de Travail. What does he suggest exactly? Here's a few of the key takeaways. Decisions around issues like 
staff bonuses will be decided by individual companies rather than national laws. On the one hand, more flexibility for small businesses which need to move quickly. On the other hand, a lot of Americans listening at home know what it feels like to get a so-called bonus of an Amazon gift card. Another key provision, small businesses will be able to negotiate directly with elected representatives from among their employees regarding issues like pay and working hours rather than negotiating with a third-party union representative. On the one hand, that means those issues will be decided quickly with the employees directly affected by these decisions instead of a third party. On the other hand, when your boss tells you that everybody's getting a pay cut, are you personally, individually willing to stand up and push back and tell your boss no? Another key proposal makes it easier for international companies to lay off employees in select locations and another provision seeks to streamline worker representation committees. Altogether, these changes are set to affect 6 million employees. That's one out of every three workers in France. And it will affect more than 80% of French businesses. So how is France reacting to these proposals? At first, it seemed as though Macron may be able to pull off what his predecessors couldn't. He managed to circumvent any debate in Parliament, where labor reform proposals usually go to die, by presenting his platform as a series of decrees. Americans can think of this as being similar to executive orders. Since President Macron currently holds a majority in the National Assembly and everybody else is squabbling amongst themselves, it's pretty easy for him to push through his changes. Everybody's expecting these to pass. But just to smooth the way, President Macron met with businesses and labor unions over a hundred times behind closed doors before he unveiled these proposals. Some of France's largest labor unions were won over, including the CFDT and Force Ouvrière, who took to the streets last time President Hollande tried to reform the labor code, but who seemed to be swallowing a bitter pill this time around. Yet the CGT, the second largest union in France, expressed their outrage at the proposals, and they announced a national strike this week on September 12th. But the fire didn't really get lit until this past Friday, when President Macron reiterated his determination to reform the labor code, saying, I will not yield anything, either to the lazy, the cynics, or the extreme. As it turns out, there's one thing that the French people can agree on from the left and right sides of the aisle. They really, really don't like it when you call them lazy. As it so happens, I'm recording this episode on September 12th, and when it comes to the proposed street protests, the jury is still out. Protest attendance counts are famously biased, with unions saying that every breathing Frenchman took to the streets, and police forces reporting an average turnout of two dudes with leaflets. It's such a recurring joke that this discrepancy appears in protest signs all the time. They say things like, protest number six, or protest number two if you're the police. 
over 100 protests took place nationwide. They snarled public transit and air traffic across the country. But whether you support the labor reforms or you don't, one thing is clear. Nobody really knows what's going to happen. Will these changes help French workers? Will these changes hurt them? For one out of 10 French workers, employee benefits like five weeks of paid vacation don't mean anything if you're out of work. Yet some workers fear that with these new sweeping reforms of the Code de Travail, le rentrée may become a thing of the past. Thank you for listening to The Land of Desire. Is this a bad time to mention that I'm going on my own vacation? It's true. I'll be heading out for my own grand vacances for the next few weeks to enjoy some warm sunshine for a change away from foggy San Francisco. Alas, I will not be visiting France. I know. But if any of you have suggestions for traveling through Athens, Santorini, or Venice, I am all ears. Send me a message on Facebook or write something on the Facebook page wall. In the meantime, until I return, thank you again for your support of the show. In the meantime, I wanted to say thank you again for your support of the show. Quite a few of you have been emailing me recently, so many that I'm sorry, I've been a little slow to reply. I've been so busy at work, I only barely have time to produce the show. So I appreciate your patience and, as always, your feedback. I'd also like to thank all of you who have been sharing the good word about the show recently. I keep getting notifications that you've been sharing the show's Facebook page and discussing the show on Reddit and Twitter. I'm so lucky to have each and every one of you as a listener, so if I haven't responded to your emails and tweets just yet, please rest assured, I promise I'll get back to you as soon as I can. And in the meantime, I appreciate every bit of feedback that you've submitted. I will look forward to returning your emails after la rentrée. And until next time, au revoir!